Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. And welcome back per usual. Today, uh, Erin and I are super excited because we are honored to have one of her fabulous 
co-workers that she works very, very closely with, Miss Karen McWaters on. And we are going to talk about all things um, collaboration, like how we actually engage in interprofessional practice. And 160 some episodes later, I think everybody knows we're huge proponents of IPP. And in order to engage in IPP, you got to first touch base through IPE, the Interprofessional Education. And so today we're going to go into um, the nuts and bolts of this. So Erin, uh, take it away, lady. I know Michelle usually does the full intro, but I get to do most of our intro today because we're interviewing my amazing friend and colleague, Karen McWaters, M-O-T-O-T-R-L. Karen is an OT working in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, she received her BS in public health from Clemson University and her master's of occupational therapy degree from Georgia State University in Atlanta. Um, her interests include sensory processing and praxis, um, neurodevelopment, DIR floor time, functional vision, and we have both most recently um, developed a strong interest in trauma-informed care. Um, this podcast specifically is very near and dear to my heart for many reasons. Um, we are discussing true interdisciplinary care working with patients with autism spectrum disorders between SLPs and OT. Um, and this case study that we're talking about today is a patient who, in combination with working with Karen as an OT, because I think it was the perfect storm, made me fall in love again with autism. Um, I was pretty dead set on working with mostly medically complex children and he was added to my caseload. And I don't think I would have had the same path and love for floor time and play-based therapy if it wasn't for also working with Karen. Um, she has become my OT confidant. She's someone who's taught me so much about bringing true joy into a session, about pausing and looking at the child holistically before you intervene and about diving even further into the behaviors <laughs> to understand the why. Um, she has filled my cup with nerdy conversations about everything from neuro to vision to sensory. And one of the people who's changed my course of actions with my patients when she clearly said, Aaron OTs don't own sensory. Um, and she's a phenomenal clinician and I know will continue to have an impact in her field. Uh, she's become my mentor in more ways than one. And made me question some days on whether I also want to become an occupational therapist. So, Well, for the record, if you ever did, you would be a great one. But you also are an amazing speech therapist and bloom where you're planted. So well, thank you. So we're excited to have Karen on today. Yes. Thank you guys for having me here. I really appreciate the opportunity and the honor to be able to come on and talk to both of you. And like Erin said, this, this, um, particular case study we're talking about today is a kid that Erin uh, and I fell head over heels in love with and um, really reignited a lot of passions in both of us. But also, I think Erin would also say was a true testament to the power of interprofessional collaboration and how um, the two disciplines can really work together in order to provide the best outcome for a kid and really facilitate a kid's progress because we were both on the same page. Folks, please know I've never actually met Karen in person. I just like fangirled from a distance because like, like I, Michelle, I saw you in a hallway one time. <laughs> okay. So then I did meet you. In 
Oh God. For about three seconds. <laughs> if, if I was there doing a site visit for the university, I probably flew in like a bat out of hell and moved on. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Hi. But uh, I think you also did like a drive-by meeting of about 40 people in about 20 minutes. Yeah, so. I, yeah I do that too. <laughs> oh, God, my poor car. Um, life of a home health therapist. But I, I like to always open it with what made you want to be an OT? Of all of the allied health, of all the medical professions, can you... Can you walk us through like how you came to be an OT and then work with this population? Sure. So like Aaron and I have been learning professionally, but then also personally, a lot of our life and interests come from our parents. My mom was a physical therapist, a pediatric physical therapist in her um, BC before children life. And she used (laughs) to give me stories about how she would work with these kids and what she would do and I remember as a seven and eight year old being like, oh, that's really cool. I think I want to do that one day. And then I got into higher and higher, you know, you get to high school and you're like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And you get into college and you're still like, I don't really know what I want to do with my life. I ended up settling on OT for a couple of reasons. One, um, I wanted a profession that would constantly challenge me in more than one way. And I felt like the allied health fields, PT, speech, OT, do that in a way that other professions don't. Um, You still have a lot of direct interaction with people um, for extended periods of time. So relationally, you're really challenged. But then also there's evidence-based practice and and being able to stretch your your brain to a new capacity that other um, jobs or disciplines don't necessarily have. I settled on OT specifically because I just fell in love with what OT was and what it could do. And I fell in love first with a pediatric OT um, and the way that pediatric OTs have a specific ability to speak into a child's life and a family's life and meet them where they are and adapt the kid and the environment to be able to meet that specific family's needs. And that was so impactful um, to be able to watch and observe and then also learn about through the whole grad school becoming your own practitioner level as well. Um, Somewhere in the middle of OT school, I thought I was going to work with adults. And then I went... (laughs) (laughs) That didn't work out. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, Because I fell in love with, with neuro and how cognitively involved it was. And I thought, oh, I want to do spinal cord. That's the hardcore rehab. Mm-mm. And then I went, I went to my pediatric rotation because in OT school, unlike uh, you, you know, rotations are different between the two disciplines. So I went to my twelve week pediatric rotation where I was supposed to learn to become an entry level pediatric OT, and fell in love all over again. Um, I realized that pedi- pediatrics has a little bit of every other area of um, of rehab pushed into development and pushed into a kid who has the capacity to play. And I love playing with my kids. It refills my cup every day. And I think that's something special that pediatrics has that no other area of therapy has that tool. So The good Lord has a way of putting us where we need to be. And I think that's wonderful. Okay. All right. 
something that has come up again and again um, is how do we collaborate with our allied health team partners without stepping on toes and causing offense? You know what I mean? And, and that that's, and, and I hear some therapists, some SLP say, well, OTs can't do feeding. And I've, and, and cause you know, feeding world is my domain. And, um, and that's not true. There's a perfect collab for that. But with respect to floor time and working with individuals with um, within our neurodiverse diverse population um, like autism, how do you how do you respect and sensory? Because I know y'all have had that conversation at length. How do you? What are your scope of practice? What is your scope of practice, Erin? If you could talk to the SLP scope of practice and how do you respect each other? So OT, sometimes I feel like we have the broadest scope of practice because our scope of practice is function. So any activity that a kid needs to do during their day that functionally impacts the way that they um, interact with their environment and are able to feel success within the context of what they need to be doing during the day is what we are trained to do um, through uh, OT spend a lot of time talking about task analysis. When you're in OT school, you do like 400 of these things where you they give you a simple task and then you have to break it down into the components that go into that task and identify where the person may be struggling with those individual components or skills and then put it back together about how can you adapt, how can you change, how can you rehabilitate. Um, to change the outcome in that task. So with that being said, sometimes I feel like OT, it's like when I have to explain OT to somebody else, it comes out as if we can do everything and nothing all at the same time. (laughs) And I think um, in a lot of ways we are um, equipped to handle a variety of challenges But we really need to work with other disciplines in order to not only provide the highest level of um, evidence-based research, but also um, spread the love. Because sometimes we get all these questions from parents specifically that are like, well, what do I do when, you know, Johnny is having a meltdown over fill in the blank. And it may be um, a sensory thing. It may be a communication thing. It may be a physical challenge that Johnny just doesn't feel equipped to handle. And all of that needs to be done in a context of what are the other people on your care team doing to tackle this? This is why we have to collab. Well, and speech gets put in a box a lot. And like speech therapists in general, I don't mean to offend anybody. They like their boxes. Like if you like speech therapists, per, like we are a breed and a lot of um, us like to know what our role is and know what we're working on and know how to measure the success in that because that is obtainable and understandable. And what the problem becomes, especially when you're working with um, autism or you know, a lot of these are medically complex children. None of it is able to be put in a box. So working on like pre-linguistic communication or paralinguistic communication with like gestures and body language, like our job is also to look at it functionally, 
but there are so many other aspects that we need to, these foundational skills that this child needs to have before we can kind of work on some of those higher level skills. And that is also part of our scope of practice, attention, um, memory engagement. I've had so many conversations with Karen about like, yes, we're working on these foundational pre-linguistic skills and allowing them to have a relationship with you and build engagement with you is so important before you can ask them to specify the way that they communicate with you. You need like, and we learn and we understand the way that children are communicating but I think we're so quick to try and transition it to the communication that we're looking for. And I know that especially in, in I hear a lot with collaboration with other disciplines with speech, like, okay, the OT is going to help them get regulated and then we're going to work on this task. Or the OT is going to help me understand how to work on this sensory component and then we're going to look at pictures. And like that is a uh, spoiler alert. That's not what Karen and I did. So, uh, <laughs> no. And also, I want to jump in because you just said a word that, like, I feel like OTs talk about a lot, and then other disciplines are like, what is that? Um, is regulation, right? Like, that ability to be calm and respond to your own environment in an appropriate way. And what I want to say about that is that speech has just as much of a role in that regulation as OT does, right? It's not like it's OT's job to get the kid regulated. We do have a role in that. But do you ever feel regulated when you don't feel heard or understood? No. Like communication is a huge part of regulation. And being able to stay regulated means that somebody understands and hears your voice. And I think that's where OT speech, we'll get into this uh, as we go, but have a huge way to be able to identify their scope separately, but then also together that we see communication functionally, but how do you target that and how do you work together best? Well, and you taught me like, you know, and it was when I had a student that I like realized this even more so or how far I've come because I was this student and you get the speech student and they just come in and they like feel like they have to be constantly saying something. Because like, I'm a speech therapist, like I have to talk. And as Michelle will say, one of our lovely friends told Michelle, why are you yelling at your patient? <laughs> Crystal, oh my God, I love it. We, Her and I were coaching. Yes. Because, well, and, and that's what we're taught, constant narration, narrate of the activity. And so we were sitting there with this little guy and she was like, you just gave 45 different cues in the span of 30 minutes. She was like, he can't process the first one. Quit yelling at him. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not yelling. And she was like, and here I am like, I'm doing a good job. I'm bringing my A game. And then like, no. And you know what? When I learned the power of shutting my mouth and waiting that awkward time, like that helped him. Yes. Oh my God, Aaron, PTSD. Yes, to <laughs> all of that. But also, Aaron, you taught me, and again, we'll talk about this, I guess, when we get into the nuts and bolts, but you taught me about how to help narrate and how to help that kid develop language skills. Because as an OT, I was never taught to talk as if I were the kid, never narrate from the kid's perspective. And we would work together, and all of a sudden, you would be like, 
oh, I want to swing. When you were talking about what you were interpreting our, our friend's cues and, and labeling that for him. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, that's a way better way to not overload with language and way better way to um, help that kid connect his actions to words rather than this roundabout, oh, do you want to swing? Oh, let me help you get on the swing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I want to swing is all that needs to be said, right? And I loved learning that from you and being able to see the value in that, but never would I have thought to switch my, my, my voice and my narration if we had not worked together. So Paul, Paul Tardy, he's one of the first OTs that put, um, emphasis in, in mentoring me. Right. And, and he was like, the way he explained sensory to me is, you know, we, as the speech pathologists are not trained in how to do the, is it the Peabody assessment? Uh, that's a motor milestone assessment. With the sensory profile index, there's a standardized assessment. Sure. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, there's yes. a few of them. Yes, yes. And and we're not we're not trained in how to administer this assessment. And forgive me, y'all, I haven't read the manual in like a boatload of years to know because in the manual it even specifically says who can like yes, administer. Yes, it does. What kind of licenses, right? Yes, 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 yes. And he was like, it he, he explained, I'll go in and do the formal assessment and then create the plan, right? He's like, but it, it's my job to then relay this child's unique plan to the entire team, which includes the caregiver, the child, all the allied health team members and specialists, right? And he was like, and if you need specific training in it, like he showed me how and several of our patients to do joint compressions so that before I go in and do, you know, a high stress, high anxiety inducing activity, such as um, changing flow rate on a bottle, such as asking a child to try an advanced texture or try a new food, you know, recognize to be able to recognize where they are in their need for regulation, implement the plan that he had relayed out that I can safely do after collaboration training, those kind of things. And that, that fundamentally changed my outlook. And, but that's, that's, that's hard. Um, Y'all, if you have not read it yet, right this very instant, go order safely. If you're driving, don't do it now. Just make a mental note. Um, Add a sync child, the whole brain child. Erin, help me out. Karen, what other books do you recommend? Sensational Kids. That's actually written by uh, Lucy Jane Miller, and she's phenomenal. Okay, it's called Sensational Kids. Yep, Sensational Kids, Out of Sync Child. Those are the first two I usually recommend to people. There's also a book called The Out of Sync Child Has Fun, which is a activity book about the sensory systems and different activities with instructions and materials and how to um, execute and how to read a child's cues about how to use your sensory knowledge in practice. And I had that book on my desk as a student and I loved it. So if you are a student of sensory and need some like very practical, okay, people keep talking about proprioception. What does that look like? Out of Sync Child Has Fun is a great um, like how-to guide. Well, I'm, I'm ordering the first one and then Mr. Dawson's going to come 
um, say, um, no more Amazon orders this week, dear bride. <laughs> so, da, da, da. Okay. All right. So with respect to this, um, to this case study, um, oh, wait, also, y'all be sure to ch- fact check us. Please get on AOTA, the American Association, uh, wait, American Occupational Therapy Association and ASHA and double check the scope of practices. I mean, trust, but verify, know your resources, know where you can go. Um, and, and just like within the world of speech pathologists and speech language um, assistants, there's also certified occupational therapy assistants who in their own right are not allowed to do formal standardized assessments, but implement the plan of care as outlined by the licensed and registered occupational therapist. So um, fact checks. Well, and also within your scope of practice, there's a, like, you have to feel confident. There are a lot of areas for interpretation. And so it's making sure that you feel confident in your own skill set as well to be able to understand those functional um, what you need to work on in order to produce some of those skills that are in your scope of practice. And it may involve reaching out to those other providers of the allied health team, but it, sometimes it can be really vague and and that's okay. That's why you're the professional, you know, you are a speech therapist and you want to learn more about how OT defines their scope and where we come from. AOTA has a massive document that defines our scope and process. It's like 50 pages long, but it has a lot of great infographics to help kind of break it down visually about where OT comes from. I'm sorry, leave it to the OTs to give a visual chart. (laughs) Sorry, like that's brilliant. The irony of that. Yep. I mean, it's written by OTs for OTs, so we we do what we do. But it's a great way to kind of, if you are trying to figure out, okay, my OT is working on this and I'm working on that. How can I meet them in the middle and where, how can I get into their head about where they're coming from? Obviously, um, ask questions and and talk, but it is also a huge um, help to be able to have something that informs you about what their governing body identifies as within their scope of practice. Let's go into the case study and talk about like the, the biggest one that we need to learn more about this case. Um, but then if we could talk about um, how y'all were able to be respectful and overlap scope of practices um, safely for this um, neurodiverse little one that y'all worked with. So I think we started seeing him around the same time. I started seeing him in June 2020, right when the clinic opened back up. Yeah. So I started seeing him via teletherapy for a little while, which was, was you know, what teletherapy was for some kids. Um, how old were we at that point? We didn't. There wasn't a lot of, like, functional language at that point. I think we were working on, like, one to two words functionally of, of requesting or refusing. Um, attention was a big, a big thing we were trying to work on to get some sort of engagement. So I had been working with mom, um, trying to work on any sort of like relationship based games that he could, um, 
that could help kind of bring him in. Uh, we loved letters. Always loved letters. I think for context, we were five and a half, somewhere around five and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it wasn't really up until we, we went to the clinic, um, that I think I really got to understand him because mom was following him around with the phone and we were in a big space and he didn't really care much about looking at me on the phone or engaging with me, which I don't blame him. And I remember when we started in the clinic, it took about two weeks or so to get him to like come inside. Wait, was this the little one that was having meltdowns in the car? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I'm not giving enough prep. Maybe it did only take a week or so, but um, another occupational therapist that was, that had treated him for a long time um, helped with that. Again, we worked on, we are very into interdisciplinary collaboration. I needed some help and more so it was a familiarity thing. Um, because this was a new clinic also. So I'm coming in with a new therapist. I'm coming in with a new clinic. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm nervous because it's been COVID and I've been in my house with my mom for this long. I don't communicate very well my needs, at least verbally. Um, so people have to understand them non-verbally and then translate them for anybody else that's around me. Um, and everyone else is really anxious because we're in a pandemic. So getting a child like that into a new space is going to be understandably a bit of a challenge. Um, so we worked through that uh, in many ways, like making it very playful, having mom come in and ha- and just be a part of the session, um, making sure we use the same door every time, having any sort of consistency that we could have. I would give mom like pictures of me and of like the walk to the clinic so that he could like, um, mm -hmm, so that he understood what was coming. Um, but once we got, I think once we got through that point, then, then we were able to, it's, and it's so funny because it's, he's come so far. So like trying to think back, on all those things. Yeah. Aaron and I were actually hanging out last night and I, um, all week in preparation for this, I've been thinking back over this kid and I was like, wow, where was he when we started? Because all I can remember is the joy and the successes as we got farther and farther. But I looked back at his reassessment. So the first time I ever met this friend, um, there was some notes in our OT assessment about, how he was best able to communicate. He was able to make a choice from two options. He was able to uh, request via signing more uh, regularly than any other form of communication and through pointing. But um, I remember when we first got the word no in an OT session and I was like, yes, he said no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I'm so pumped he said no. Like... (laughs) Only only a therapist would be excited about the word no to that level. <laughs> because, yes, love this. Yes. Right. Able, so uh, another thing that I tracked over time in this case was something that we call referencing. So his ability to share attention with another person and look back during play. So if I do something, does he look at me? Does he respond to me as, as a person? as a person in play. And um, 
He was doing that somewhat, but a lot of his play was isolated and repetitive. So um, he loved, I remember in this reassessment, because I was in there with the other OT who had seen him for a long time. And I was like, oh, my word. I don't know. I might be over my head because we were taking a standardized test and using Lightning McQueen to do the standardized test all over the place. And I was like, ah, how does he know to use Lightning McQueen? I never, I don't know. Wow. I don't know. And um, anyway, he, a lot of his play was watching wheels spin or manipulating a car in his hands. Very repetitive scripted play. That was in June of 2020. I mean, when you sit back and you look at the progress. Oh, gosh. I mean, Michelle, folks, I am so excited to talk about the progress. Yes. So, I mean, we were working on like two word phrases at that point was a big thing. Like he had, um, he we would start like trying to utilize more of like pronouns of him identifying that I want. Um and at that point, too, we were really working on feelings because he had a lot of feeling, big feelings. So, yes, making sure that we could, like, identify and tell, like, my toe hurt or I feel angry or I feel sad. And then, like, one, you know, one step direction. So it was we'll, – we'll get to where we, where we have gotten to. Well, and, and I just – I want to put this advice out. Folks, when you are doing your evaluation – preface your families with progress will happen, but it's so, sometimes it seems so little, but when you look back 14 months later, you realize how much it is. So when you have that aha moment, write it down on a calendar somewhere. So on the day that, um, this is my visual piece. Do you, do you love that Karen? So like the day the kid says, no, write that on the calendar. Billy Bob said, no, his name's not Billy Bob. I'm just using Billy Bob. Cause that's my go-to, um, Billy Bob and Susie Q, but like write that on the calendar and then have the mom or the caregiver keep that same calendar. And then when they're having a blue day, have them flip back three months earlier and be like, wow, remember when we were at this point? Look how far we've already come. And that's a great strategy for um, for for all these little wins. And they add up. Okay. All right. So then talk to us about the progress because that's what I want to hear. <laughs> what did y'all do? Well, we uh, in OT, we spent a lot of sessions because this kid came twice a week. So we spent a lot of sessions on a swing. Um and and that feels like a classic OT thing to to say and to do, but that's when he first used the word no. That's when I first heard him use the words I want. Um, and we used to offer choices. Do you want spin or push? You know, different motions in the swing. And we would spend hours in the swing just working on functional communication, being able to request for things. And I remember somewhere in there, Aaron, is the first time that we – talked about this kid was during the swing days Um, because we went from swing days to block days to Mario Kart days to I mean it just it grew so fast but those swing days are what I remember that's the first time I ever remember hearing the word no it's the first time I remember hearing more than two words put together um I actually listened to another podcast recently about the vestibular sense and engagement and how those two are really linked. If you're interested in learning about that, uh, it's a podcast. Can I plug this, Michelle? 
is a podcast called Making Sense that's put out by the Star Institute. Wow. It was so good. It connected so many dots for me that I was like, yes, clinically, I see this. And yes, clinically, this happened in this case where you give a kid vestibular input and they can feel their own body in relation to their environment. And it helps them have that embodied experience of movement and action in their environment. And it triggers something. Well, and then that's why those words, like those words too, the spin versus like put like giving those words and then they're having that experience while they're hearing this vocabulary to give them the verbiage to explain it is so valuable which is why and don't get upset with me but why like trying to learn actions with pictures just doesn't make sense to me because they need to feel the action. Sorry, but that's like that a, is nothing to apologize for, a woman. That is life. We learn verbs in action, in the motion, and not static and sterile. That's brilliant. So I kind of did a little um, this morning. I was like, I need to write down a timeline just to be able to show. So I went back through every single. See, this is why I, everyone needs a and Aaron needs a Karen because she is the because I'm the timeline <laughs> the one that comes fully prepared. Um so that was in so we're talking about June to September of 2020. In September of 2020 this little one was spontaneously using two to three word phrases and had like minimal cues to use up to four. I want more swing. I want fill in the blank. Um he was starting to actually request for things. Um, still having difficulty transitioning. But the other thing I noted in September, our stimming type behaviors dropped by a lot. The hand flapping, the spinning, the um, the the things that we used to reg he was using to regulate when he was having a hard time communicate dropped because his communication grew and his engagement grew. Um, by February 2021, we were starting to use four words independently. And the biggest thing for me was this kid started to look to others to co-regulate when he started to get frustrated. He got so mad at himself in a session once and he looked me dead in the eyes and said, give me a hug when he was so frustrated. And never would I have thought that this, when you look at the June kid versus the February kid, to say, give me a hug when frustrated and really seek engagement to face a challenge was a huge functional gain for this kid. Huge. Um, and we can talk about social emotional growth and all of that and where he was um, cognitively to see another person as a resource and to know how to access that resource. Ugh, just like, oh man, I, I love this kid and talking about it makes me fall back in love with him again. <laughs> um, well, and like, Oh, you want go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry, Erin. No, and because I think like Karen, what was cool about us working together is that like I was able to pull like I found joy in his language development, but also in the fact that I was now understanding a lot of this other development that he was having in conjunction with his language. And his and I had throughout seeing him um like research more into floor time and those capacities that they talk about in floor time to understand language from a different perspective of like, not just the language development in this 
model that we utilize of what skills they should be obtaining, but language development to help him obtain these these play skills and these like functional skills for life, um, such as like social problem solving. And that was, that was, I remember, and I'm looking back, um, timeline wise, but like, I remember by like, um, like April or May of this year, like our sessions were, people looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) because like, we were crazy, we were crazy, but like, I remember sessions where like, he would want to, he loved to dress up. So he would want to dress up as like a monster and he would chase me around the clinic with like these monster feet and like verbalizing, like, I'm going to get you and here I come and run away and like very functional vocabulary for any situation. And then like we would take turns of him running around and me chasing him. And there was one specific um, uh, session where we like used a scooter board. And he would, he, we, I would pull him on the scooter board. Well, at one moment in time, we didn't have a scooter board. So I was trying to get him to understand by pulling me on the rope that it didn't quite work. Um, but it, he figured it out. So um, we pulled in another therapist to like help him pull me on the floor with no scooter board. Um, so Aaron, like, for, for context, Aaron is laying on her back on the floor in the clinic. This kid has a rope and he's hauling her down the hallway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he had... And we, but, and, but like with that problem solving aspect, okay, he couldn't pull me. We had to use language. Hey, Miss Sam, come help me. And he like, Hey, help me, come help me pull. And like, first start with help expanding on that phrase pulling. And then we like, and, um, we have a, a someone that we work with who like with all of his patients, like his big thing is like, Oh, I have an idea or a good idea. So he like, <laughs> um, we then like work to, Oh, I have an idea to go get the scooter board and pulled that. And we built this whole play schema of like the scooter board breaking down, which was his idea of like it having a problem, him falling. And we like repeated the same play schema over and over again. But you know why that's really valuable from a language standpoint point specifically is every time we did that, I expanded on the language. So every time we did that same play schema, I expanded on what vocabulary we were using. And he expanded on what vocabulary he was using because it was, the schema was predictable. So I like had comfort in that. And then I could expand on what phrases I was using. And we, we, uh, when I say the swing days, the slide days, the block days, it's because he systematically worked through different play schemas that made sense to him at the time. And Aaron and I would use that same game over and over and over again, but it never looked the same way twice because it was a way to stretch his motor planning, his praxis skills from an OT perspective. You're doing ability. the task analysis. Right. We're talking about... Does like I was talking to Aaron about this last night um, about, and this is a good example, Aaron, about how he was using the rope to pull you on the floor. Months before that, we had worked on the idea of what it means to pull and different things you could use to pull. And we used to get into this reciprocal cycle of he would fall down the slide and I would use a rope to pull him back up and he would almost make it and then fall back down the slide again. And we would use a rope, we would use a pool noodle, we would use a baseball bat, we would use a hula hoop, like literally anything you could hold on to and pull, we would swap it out. So it was a way to expand his knowledge of how to use his environment with 
just the concept of pooling. And Aaron did the same thing with language with we're playing the same game, but here's a new phrase. Here's a new way to communicate. We're going to expand, expand, expand. Well, and you taught me about praxis specifically because, you know, and, and this goes back to the whole point of like what we're trying to talk about today of not, um, I think a lot of people misinterpret, like, I think it's not interdisciplinary. I think a lot of people use multidisciplinary practice, but have a hard time with the interdisciplinary. And the hard part is like, I can't do my job successfully if I'm asking a child to complete a motor task that is too difficult. Because that is just frustrating. It was the other day, and this isn't the specific kid, but it was the other day I had a kid who was throwing his, like, he, mom is like, he always throws his spoon. And he, you know, and from what she was saying at first, in my SLP brain, I was like, oh, he's refusing. He doesn't want to eat. He's refusing. And then I remembered um, another one of our colleagues and like Karen talking about like how kids dump out toys because that's a motor plan they understand. And so I was like, Hmm. I'm asking a child to scoop their spoon and put it in their mouth, which is really hard, but they know they can throw it. And that's cause and effect of the spoon is going to the floor and then you're going to pick it up and give it back to me. So like understanding the prep, like what you're asking a child to do, because, you know, SLPs, I think will get into a Oh, I'm, I, you know what, we're going to do some, we're going to do some motor movements to help them regulate because that's going to make them feel more successful so that when I ask them to do this articulation task or this language task, they're going to have like been regulated and gotten their movements out. But you set up an obstacle course that's too hard for them. So now you're asking them to do something that's also difficult to try to help them feel better about themselves and do something that's also difficult. So like with this kid, it was, it was helpful to understand also the why, the why of when we were trying to expand from something, why he just wanted to stack something or it made me look at him differently. Just to speak to where he ended up, when Aaron and I last saw this child, he had started to use multiple ways to communicate and Oh, we're going to talk about that. My favorite day. <laughs> oh, can we please talk about our favorite day? But um, he had started to use even beyond just this one day that we're going to talk about that was just like this magic flow of OT speech, m- like magical day. Oh, it was wonderful. But um, he had started to use multiple ways and methods to communicate what his idea was. And he would be patient with you if you didn't get it the first five times. I mean, I had this kid try to explain a complex idea to me for 20 minutes straight before he started to cry over it. And that was like, I would cry if I was trying to tell you something for 20 minutes and you didn't get it. Like, I was so excited to see him grow, but he also started using visual methods to communicate when he had an idea that wasn't, I wasn't picking up on. I would go to a whiteboard and draw what I thought he was saying, and then he would come over and correct it. So when he couldn't verbally tell me what was different and didn't have the language, he was still finding another way to connect and communicate. Because he had very, he started to get to the point where his ideas were much um, more complex than he was able to communicate. And, and 
I remember like towards the end, he would, he would come into the session with an idea. Like he would bring a notepad or he would bring a toy. Like he came in already knowing what he wanted to do, which was really cool because I think he understood that this was a place and it's going to get me like emotional, but like he, like thinking back on it, it makes me realize that he understood that coming to see a Karen, I love him. If you can't tell that coming to see us was a place that he felt safe to have these broad ideas and like have someone that would listen and help him do something that was like more difficult or like, he just felt like this was this place that he like could grow and, and explore. And I remember he came in this day with a notepad and he like walks in with his notepad and we started like playing a little bit with like some cars that he wanted to play with. And then he like, Oh, I can't remember. He like started to draw a circle and he, I thought he, I think at first I thought he wanted like to, I knew it was somebody to do with a face because he would, and he would like draw a circle please. And he, and what was so funny, like Karen was saying, he would tell me to draw a circle and then he would be like, no, draw around and stop. Like he'd get, he'd tell me to draw a circle, but then he would tell me the action of how to draw a circle just to make sure that I understood what he was saying. And so I will, um, cop to the fact that I am not a crafter and I am really bad at drawing. I probably need some occupational <laughs> therapy myself, but my grip strength is not good. I've learned like, I don't, you know, I'm longe- It's fine. Um, so I pulled in another speech therapist, um, that we work with Claire, who is like the, the best at like that creative aspect of what we do. And so he was like trying to teach, he, she eventually figured out that he wanted to have like a, his face in this circle because she cut out a circle and she'd be like, do you want it bigger? So I was like, no, draw a bigger circle, please. I want bigger circle. So she would like draw a bigger circle. And he was so, so, so patient. And he eventually, so she drew the circle and he goes, I want tape, please. Let's use tape. So he like, she gave him choices and like he coached her through put tape on ears, please tape on ears, more tape on head, like coaching us through this entire thing. And then he, um, and he tried to explain, I can't remember what language he used to try to explain what he was doing, but he, he wanted, he goes tape on feet, please paper tape on feet. So we put the tape on his feet and then I can't remember if yet we had gone to his, his, his torso yet, but he starts jumping and he was like making this squeaky noise and it took a couple of us, but we realized that this child was trying to help us make him the Pixar lamp. That little lamp that jumps on the eye at the beginning of Pixar movies. <laughs> the murdering lamp. Yeah. It's the he, murdering lamp. <laughs> he wanted to be that lamp. And he, so for context, he has this white paper circle taped to his ears with his face in the middle, like the light bulb. And then he's got little paper shoes taped onto his feet and he starts jumping around making those noises like the lamp. So then he comes over to OT and I grab my giant roll of paper and Aaron actually ended up hanging out with us for this whole hour. I think you had a cancellation or something and we're just so excited about what was happening. But he comes over to OT and we ended up making this entire costume 
out of paper and turning him into the Pixar lamp. And I went and grabbed a flashlight off my desk and he like put the flashlight where his face should be and then um, started using himself. He has this theory of mind to be able to say, I am now the Pixar lamp. Where should I go? And he goes, let's go find somewhere dark. And he went into a dark room and turned on the lamp and was like, wow, look at that. Which was amazing because just in that, not only do you have so much language to communicate what he wants and where to put it and where to put the tape and how to coordinate all of this, right? But also you have that symbolic play that he understands what this is and how to put it into his world and then pretend to be that thing. Build a bridge from, if I'm a lamp, what do I do? Oh, I go light up dark places. Let's go explore. Come this way. Invite us into his play and his world. It was so amazing to go from, and that was in about a year to the date since those one word phrases, right? In a year, this kid had gone from signing to let's go find somewhere dark as he's dressed up like a lamp. But that is because of the power of a couple of things, not least of which interprofessional collaboration, to make sure that we are working on the same kind of goals in the same way. This is the least Michelle has talked on a podcast, by the way. I'm just sitting in and, well, because you find your person. And when you find your person that you jive with professionally and you just – Everything that you described is all of this kid's progress and this thought thought process is predicated on the fact that the two of you can read each other's social skills, the pragmatics, know and anticipate. And that takes time and seeking to understand how each other's professions do collaborate, right? And, And that was... I got to be honest, grad school in general, for speech pathologists, they, we have to focus on Ash's big nine, right? Um, fluency, voice, dysphagia, all the others. I don't know, <laughs> but like I should, I'm sure I do somewhere, somewhere it's written down. Yeah. I mean, we have comparison, like we have very, very, very specific um, things that we work on as speech therapists, like that you have to be very specialized to understand so sometimes it's hard to then branch out from that. And in OT school as well, we spend a ton of time on like dressing and bathing and adaptation skills and all these things that like, wow, you get out into the into the professional world and you realize that that is just the tip of the iceberg, that there's so much more. Yes. And that's something that I have to say, I am wearing my hat, um, my volunteer hats and having been in leadership positions. I I see high level deficits amongst our profession, right? So within my little clinic class, and I'm still learning. I mean, I'm not, I'm God knows I'm not a great professor. I think I'm, 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 we're doing okay. Right. But one piece that we have focused on specifically is interprofessional education and practice. And I had the students work through Addison Child. I had the students work through all of these different texts. That's um, actually, I'm glad you recommended that other one because I'm adding it and we'll put it in our clinic resource library. But um, it's 
it's so cool because this was, my God, this was never covered in grad school when I went to grad school. And it's neat to get the feedback from my external clinical supervisors that are like, your students want to know how they can collaborate with my OT. Your students want to know how they can collaborate with my PT. I've I've never had a student ask these questions before. And I'm like, yes, we're making a difference because, because of everything you just talked about. But having the humility upon graduation to know that you only know the surface level, that... I, that if, if we can, if I can pour that into them and that you engage in IPP to make, help these patients meet, meet their, their functional goals to the max capacity, then. Well, to also know that it's not always going to go like this. Like we got very lucky. So understanding that like, on the other side, which Michelle and I talk about a lot, having to find a way to collaborate and be gentle about it. Um, I personally, you know, now that I'm doing a lot more in home, um, don't always have a Karen or um, another therapist that I think very similarly to on the team. And I've had to have a lot of conversations with other providers, as Michelle would say, coming from a seek to understand perspective um, of why maybe they're working on something and how we can kind of collaborate better to so that we're not putting the parent in an uncomfortable position too, because I'll get in there sometimes and I hear that the OT is doing a lot of um or another provider is recommending a ton of oral motor exercises, which is, which, but it's also just not my therapeutic technique for what I work on. So it, then you have to go into, okay, this is a moment for both of us to learn and, and being kind and gentle and trying to understand because I go into believing that every therapist is doing what they think is best. So, and you need to, you have to have that in order to truly collaborate. I was reviewing because I did have an interdisciplinary class in grad school. I still don't think it gives you a taste for what it's like in the real world to collaborate because, um, first of all, you don't have clients in grad school. Right. You're just like talking generally about what is interdisciplinary collaboration and what, you know, all these like lofty things that are not super tangible. And I um I think that there's a couple of things, and I think Aaron, you could probably echo this as well, but I think there's a couple of things that really help with interdisciplinary collab. Um there was a actually specifically about autism, there was a journal article I was reading about Um, It was published in 2016 in the Autism Research Journal about um, barriers to communication between interdisciplines. And they identified four. And I think I've run into these over and over and over again. Um, Divergent goals, divergent values, divergent approaches, and different lexical conventions, meaning we don't speak the same language between disciplines. And if there is one thing that I think that Aaron and I did well in this, it was that we figured out a way to talk to each other 
using the same terms. And if I could give a practical piece of advice out of it, it would be take continuing ed classes that are not geared towards one discipline, that are a language, a framework for your approach to therapy because it gives you an ability to communicate in a way that discipline-specific or technique-specific continuing ed classes don't. I mean, Karen and I are about to take the together, actually, um, the in the same section, um, the 201 floor time course. Um, and I have really gone to find a lot of value in floor time. And it, for that same reason, it gives you, it gives you that language of where we can both understand where this child is at and then talk about our perspective goals within that, um, com- within that framework that they, that they're working on. And also it, and Karen was the first one that was like, you should, you should take floor time. And I was like, what is that? She's like, well, it's what you're doing. But like, you're di- but I didn't know. I mean, Michelle, you're the one that like taught me about play and that parallel talk, parallel play component and building engagement. And so like it always, it just made sense to me. But now I have the vocabulary to explain it to parents, to explain it to other professionals. So they don't just come up to me like, and me and be like, I, we have a, um, and be like, oh, you just like play the whole session. And you're like, well, yes. I got to, I got to tell my favorite Aaron student story ever. I was at this patient's house and I treated two of their three children. One of them, um, um, had a diagnosis of ASD and was completely nonverbal um, at the time that I got him. And the um, other baby was uh, a NICU graduate, was a micro preemie. And I picked them up within like two weeks of each other. Um, and there we were with my little one who has autism, neurodiverse. And Aaron had just started with me and he was having a meltdown. So I threw my body on the floor and mimicked his, um, his body actions and was stomping, um, kicking, throwing my hands down, screaming, I am mad. I am so mad. And Aaron looked at me like I had lost my freaking mind the first time. And then I was like, come on down here. And then she did it. And the little guy looked at me and he looked at Aaron and he smiled and he goes mad. And then he wasn't mad anymore. And we were like, yes, Bubby, you're mad. And Aaron took it and ran with it. And it was like, it was like all the light bulbs went off and the mom was like, look, I just had a baby. If I get on on the ground, I'm not getting up. And then she looked at her husband and was like, you have to do that. <laughs> so like, it was, oh God, that's, oh my God, that's so funny. Okay. All right. So we officially have run out of time. Can you, can you guys give me y'all's closing thoughts? Or words of wisdom or take this course or pursue this or read this or... Yeah, I have two, three big thoughts. One, if I could change one thing about what Aaron and I did, it would have been get on the page, same page earlier um, and involve the parent more. Um, and even if that means you can't bring the parent in, zoom her in, you know, put her on the phone, mute yourself, 
kid doesn't even have to know parent is there, right? But that's the one big thing I wish we had changed was do it earlier and involve parents as much as possible. Now, sessions like what we're talking about are really hard because we don't sit in one place. We move constantly. So um, it's, it's a little bit difficult. But other thing is find your partner in crime. Find somebody you really gel with and and talk to consistently. Because even if you don't share the same kids, if you can just get their perspective, you know, if you're like, I really value your perspective as from my perspective, from my world as a speech therapist, I really value Aaron's perspective. So I will frequently come to her and be like, what can I do differently? Or how can I approach this conversation with their speech therapist? How can I approach this conversation better? Because she and I click. So if she can help give me the lens that I'm missing, even when we're not directly collaborating, it makes a difference. And then so far as continuing ed classes go, I can't recommend um, DIR floor time approach enough. I think it's uh, hands down the most evidence-based, also um, most ethical approach to therapy that I've ever come in contact with. Um, If you're interested in Sensory processing specifically, I would highly recommend courses by the STAR Institute. STAR is an acronym, so it's in all caps. And then Aaron and I just recently went through some um, trauma-informed training. It's, it's an approach called TBRI. And that is used, the power in some of these tools is that they're used for social workers, they're used for psychiatrists, they're used for OT, PT speech, for educators. So you are really really targeting the whole picture when you're able to speak the language that is taught in those kinds of courses. No, I think, I mean, I, I second all of that. I've, I've, it's been this past year that I've really, really fallen in love with my floor time kids with like understanding trauma. Um, but that is because I found someone that I could communicate with and could help me understand and was patient. Um, with me and didn't make me, you know, sometimes you feel like you're going to ask a stupid question and people are going to look at you like, why doesn't she know this? Um, I don't feel that way with Karen. So it just feels like a very safe space. And, and it's, and I've been able to also pull these concepts in with my more medically complex children for the, like, we're talking about this specifically with autism, but there's a lot DIR is doing a lot of research with children with like cerebral palsy, um, Down syndrome, some some more even more neurodiverse population specifically, and with trauma, I mean, it, you do have to with TBRI and floor time, you do have to really um, modify these approaches for the capacity of the child, but they're there. Our kids that are medically complex have trauma and they want to play, and so you have to five really had to find a way to help them play. Like some of these kids don't get that opportunity because of how, um, non-ambulatory they are, or they're on a vent or feeding tube or things like that. So that's something that I've been really passionate about as well. And that was through, um, this whole experience. So kind of always being open, um, to these new ideas and you really never know where, one patient or one experience is kind of going to lead you. I am grateful for y'all sharing your intimate personal growth story of a patient and how y'all came to forge this together as allied health. Like that's just, that's why we do it. So thank you. Karen, I want to meet you like in real life. (laughs) 
Hey, Michelle. So, I've been hearing about you for like a year. So okay. next time I crash with Aaron um, up in the upstate, um, uh, I, I will throw for a round of um, adult beverages without tiny humans. Yay! Yay! <laughs> uh, okay, everybody that's out there, thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us. Um, we, as always, are grateful for the um, kind words, for sharing the First Bite passion. Um, please know that we hear you. And today's episode was a direct request on how SLPs can collaborate with OT. So when we do the little um, Instagram questions on at First Bite Podcast on Instagram, you know, we we ask and you, you tell us what you want, and then we do our best to fulfill your request. So keep the request coming. Make sure you follow us on um, First Bite podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. As always, we love it when you give us a podcast review on Apple Podcast. Um, don't forget the book uh, Chasing the Swallow is available now on Amazon and also eligible for 13.5 uh, continuing education hours through speech therapy PD, which brings you the lovely first bite team. Huzzah! All right, that's it. Ladies, hold tight. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul. Be kind and feed those babies.